recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christianity Saturdays. Today is Saturday, June 28, 2014. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Last night, before my Romans chapter 9 presentation began, I, um, I had a distraction. I wanted to talk about a video that was, what was put on the front page of Christogenia.org yesterday, and I had a distraction. I, I was compelled to explain my theological position that, that it wouldn't change even if all of my five children from my past life turned out to be niggers or Jews. My theological position certainly wouldn't change. We all know in, in Scripture that all bastards end up in a lake of fire and that our personal situation does not change the truth of Scripture. The truth of Scripture is immutable. The Word of God does not change. We do not form God in our image. God, if we're children of Adam, Yahweh our God has formed us in his image and demands of us that we conform ourselves to him. There is no changing that. That is inviolable. And if you're a bastard, there's no way that you could conform yourself to Christ. So forget it. You're live this life out, and that's all you've got. And um, stay out of our way when the shit hits the fan or you won't live long. That's the way it is. The... Um, the topic I really wanted to talk about was a video that I placed on the front page of Christianity yesterday entitled, well, well I entitled it um, Brother Ryan on the Mongolization of Christian Identity. Of course, that's what I called the post on my page. He has a different title. He simply calls it Mongolized DSCI. I would ask everybody to watch that video and look past Brother Ryan's... Um, Demeanor, I mean, he, he comes from a place that not many of us are familiar with, but I'm familiar with it, and, and I respect it. The, um, and, and we should listen to our brethren for, for their intelligence and what they have to say, and, and not necessarily because we come from a culture that, that dresses differently or doesn't wear pink shirts or, or, or doesn't have tattoos. So look past that. Look at your white brethren as peers in Christ and listen to their message, and, and you will be pleased and surprised. Anyway, when I split with E.Y. James three and a half years ago, and, and let me not even start there. Let me start here. When I was a little kid and watched cowboy movies, and there was a crime, very often in, in Jewish Hollywood shtick, right? That they would raise great clouds of dust around the scene of the crime, and that the heroes couldn't see the villains through the clouds of dust, and the villains would make off unidentified. It's an old Jewish trick, right? But when something happens, if you can raise great clouds of dust, you could obscure the vision of the people around you so that they don't see the crime. The Internet's an easy place to do that. Somebody does something, and, 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 and there's a division, a division in friends, a division in fellow workers. Two people go separate ways. And, and, and the person that did something is looking to cover what he did. 
And the person that was offended by the crime is looking, in, in this spirit of Leviticus chapter 5, is looking to announce the crime to his kindred. So the person that did something is going to naturally raise great clouds of dust. And, of course, the Internet isn't an old cowboy movie. So what, what, what happens is he starts making all sorts of accusations. And, and I'm not going to say that, that um, all of the accusations aren't true. I, I, I did some things that maybe um, if I went back and wanted to be the choir boy, I wouldn't have done. But I didn't do anywhere near the things this man accused me of. And even though I didn't do those things, what happens on the Internet or, or in society is that people start to think that, oh, those two bitches are fighting again. That They're like husband and wife. So-and-so is acting like a woman that was scorned. And, and, and um, I'm not going to pay any attention to that. They could squabble all they want. That they, they, they'll both calm down eventually and, and go about their business. So I'm not going to look at the facts. That's natural. I understand that. It's totally natural. And there's a segment of Christian identity that I always thought was important to me. Maybe it's because of my prison background that, that I hung out with guys that were um, Aryan nations, and I did. And um, they respected me, and, and we kicked it together, played softball, stuff like that. Guys that were um, affiliated with other organizations that, that, that are generally only found in, in, in certain circles or in prisons that I got along with just fine and, 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 and taught and, and learned from. Well, I was never able to, to reach that group not because they didn't care about the truth, but because the person that, that I had the issue with has been for a long time um, ingratiated with that group and, and connected to them and attended their feasts and, and, and their, um, their events and spoke with them and their speeches. So those guys weren't really interested in the squabble, they didn't, uh, none of them, well, maybe there's one or two, but I don't, I don't bear any grudges. None of them ever really attacked me. Uh, I mean, they just stayed out of the squabble. So basically, the great cloud of dust, to me, in my perspective, this may still not be their perspective. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not attributing to, to them everything that I feel at the present time. But the great clouds of dust, in my perspective, allowed the criminal to get away with the crime. Well, the dust is settling. And some of those people that are good men are looking at the facts. And, and it's not my credit that they're looking at the facts. I'm not taking credit for anything. Some of these men are... are intelligent men and know their scriptures and they have conviction and um, when they look at the facts they know what's going on so it took three and a half years it took 40 months and a man that's always supported by work and who's actually a longtime friend of my wife Melissa he 
has taken the time to look at the, the details of the squabble that I've had for all this time with Eli James. And, and he went and heard the tapes, not my tapes. He went and heard Eli's own words, and he understood my dispute. So to me, that's a blessing. Not that I convinced him, but that he went and looked at the, the actual things that gave me an issue with Eli James and understood where I was coming from. Because the truth will prevail when men of knowledge and intelligence take the time to look past the clouds of dust and examine the facts. So Brother Ryan's response is this, um, that this video speaking about mongrelized dual seedline Christian identity. And I feel that to have him make this understanding and, and in his own words, put his sword in the fight that we've been fighting for three and a half years. That is a real blessing. And I feel that Brother Ryan is a great asset, not to me, to our message. Because it's the message and it's the truth. That's what matters. That's what counts. I don't count. And my listeners understand that I've made that profession here. Many times in the past in my podcasts, you don't have to like me. I know that I'm a Yankee smartass. I come off like a hardass. I'm, I got, I got that Northeast accent that, that a lot of people were turned off by. It, it's um, in your face, um, um, but I'm all about the facts, and I really try to be all about the facts and the truth. It's the message that's important. It's not me that's important. So, so, Brother Ryan has seen the evidence, he's come to the truth, he realizes why I had issues three and a half years ago, and he will be a great asset in promoting the truth of what, of what actually happened through my relationship with Eli James and the fault that I actually find with the professions that Eli James has made, which caused me to have issues with him. And that's because, as I said many times, and I say it because I have the substance to back up my accusations, Eli James is a universalist. That's the way it is. And... and um, I hope we're not going to talk about Eli James, but I've um, been hoping to have Brother Ryan on my program for a long time. So he will be here next week talking about Christian governance. And, and that will be timely because it's also July 5th, right? It's the day after the 4th of July. When everybody's thinking about governance and, and, and 
the the um the other related topics that go along with that. So I'm sure that'll be a fruitful program, and I look forward to doing it. So I thank Brother Ryan for for um not not for his support for me, but for for his own um his own support for this message because that's what counts. Praise Yahweh. With that, we will get to um, Martin Luther on the Jews, part 11. We um, presented part four of Martin's treatise. It's part 11 of our Christogenia series, right? We presented part four of our treatise on Martin Luther last week, and, and this week I hope to present all of part five. I, I hope that the, the, the details of this paper don't bore people. I, I think sometimes they're boring and they're a little mundane and drawn out, but, but it's important to understand the mistakes Martin Luther made and why he made them, and it's just as important to understand the good things that Martin Luther realized about his people called the Jews and why he realized them, that he knew, even though he thought that they were, um, that they were God's chosen people, he thought they were the genetic Israelites of Scripture, he still knew that they were evil, that they were what were, he wouldn't, he, he stopped short of calling them devils, but he said many times, or at least he has so far in his paper, but he said many times that they were like devils. They acted like devils. He, he called them bastards. In part five of his treatise, Martin Luther continues his discussion of Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, in relation to the scepter of Judah. And we will continue with our criticism of his interpretation and giving him credit where credit is due. First, however, we must explain that if the prophecies of Jacob to his 12 sons, and this is important to understand, if those prophecies are of efficacy in the dispersions of Israel for some of the tribes, we see um, Dan will be a serpent by the way. Zebulun will be a haven by the sea. If, if we look at Zebulun's territory in the Old Testament, after the lots are drawn in Joshua, Zebulun's territory is landlocked. We see in Jacob's blessing in Genesis 49.10 that Zebulun will be a haven by the sea. The Old Testament doesn't explain that. We can explain it historically. We can explain it from our Christian identity perspective, but the Old Testament does not really explain that. The Joseph is a fruitful bow, and, and, and his, his, um, his, his branches flow over the wall, which actually is basically a poetic way of explaining the prophecy that Jacob and, and the blessings that Jacob had already given to Joseph's sons in Genesis chapter 48. 
where he told um, Ephraim and Manasseh that they would be a, a nation, a great nation, and a company of nations. In Genesis 49, it's not spelled out that way, but it's poetically expressed, Joseph is a fruitful bow and his branches will flow over the wall, meaning that he will grow well, be, well beyond his boundaries, right? That these prophecies of these tribes, these blessings that Jacob gives to his 12 sons, if they have efficacy for the sons of Israel in their dispersions, and they have to for Manasseh to be a company of nations, right? Or Ephraim to be a company of nations and Manasseh to be a great nation. They have to. Because Ephraim didn't have much territory in the land of Canaan when you look at his territory, at his portion. Well, if those blessings have efficacy beyond the bounds of old Israel, and they have to have it, then the prophecy concerning the scepter of Judah must also have efficacy beyond the bounds of ancient Israel, outside of ancient Palestine. This perspective is only understood with an understanding of Christian identity that Martin Luther did not have the opportunity to possess. So here we are in the middle of Luther's um, interpretation and arguments of Genesis 49.10 and the, the scepter of Judah and its fulfillment. And as Clifton Emma Heiser often said, Luther's blind in one eye. He doesn't see Judah outside of Palestine. He wants to take this Genesis 49.10 prophecy and contain it to Palestine. And it's a wrong interpretation And because Luther doesn't see Israel in their deportations and doesn't understand those prophecies concerning Israel and their dispersions, he is um, blind in this area. Luther proceeds his criticism of other wrongful interpretations of Genesis 49.10, he, he's basically um, picking apart the, the, the ways the Jews of his time interpreted Genesis 49.10. And we will now continue where we left off from last week, but we are actually at the top of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lives, Part 5. And Martin Luther... In, in, in the mundane aspects of this verse, continues by saying, some, meaning some of these interpreters, twist the word dones, which means until, and try to make it into because, or kia, which means because. And, and Luther's interpreting Genesis 49.10 here, he was interpreting it from the Chaldee language in part four of his exposition, now he's making a comparison of two words that are actually from the Latin Vulgate. So they read, the scepter of Judah will not depart, donats. That is because the Messiah will come. And he's saying that this is how certain wrongful interpreters of his time interpret the Latin of Genesis 49.10. 
So they read, the scepter of Judah will not depart, that is, because the Messiah will come, instead of the traditional reading of until. He perpetrated, he who perpetrated this is a precious master, worthy of being clowned with thistles. Now, Luther, if we remember from last week, insists that the word Shiloh in Genesis 49.10 refers to the Messiah and the first advent of Christ. We would assert that Shiloh means peace, and it does, the Hebrew, and the Messiah did not come in his first advent to bring peace. He himself told us that. So, Judah's scepter must continue beyond the first advent of Christ. That's the way I would interpret it. I can safely speak for Clifton Amaheiser. That's the way he would interpret it. Luther thinks that Judah's scepter ended with the first advent of Christ because Christ, at his first advent, it is that Shiloh of Genesis 49.10. We would defer the reference to Shiloh until the second advent of the Messiah. That is when we are indeed promised peace because all of his enemies shall be destroyed. That is another major difference in our interpretation of Genesis 49.10 as compared to Luther. He reverses, back to Luther, he reverses the correct order of things. The Messiah will come, therefore the scepter will remain. Jacob, however, first makes Judah a prince and a lion to whom the scepter assigns prior to the coming of the Messiah. He then, in turn, will give it to the Messiah. This is Luther's interpretation of Shiloh. Thus, Judah retains neither the principality nor the role of lion nor the scepter which Jacob assigned to him. Furthermore, the fool arbitrarily makes out of the term until a new term, because. This, of course, the language does not permit. In other words, Luther is arguing that it's not possible to interpret Genesis 49.10 to say that the Judah will, the scepter will remain with Judah because the Messiah comes. And he continues by saying, and finally, there is a rabbi who twists the word come and claims that it means to set, just as the Hebrew uses the word to come for the setting of the sun. This fellow is given to such nonsense that I am at a loss to know whether he is trying to walk on his head or on his ears. For I fail to understand the purport of his words when he says that the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh, the city, goes down or sets. Then David, the Messiah, will come. Where, to repeat what was said above, was the scepter of Judah prior to Shiloh, meaning the city, or Saul, the first king in, in Israel, who was actually a Benjamin, right? But they who rage against their own conscience and patent truth must needs speak such nonsense. In brief, Lyra is right when he says that even if they invent these and many other similar glosses, the Chaldean text topples all of them and convicts them of being willful liars, blasphemers, and perverters of God's word. However, I wanted to present this to us Germans so that we might see what rascals the blind Jews are 
and how powerfully the truth of God in our midst stands with us and against them. And, and Luther's right for claiming that the um, Luther is wholly right in his discourse about how the Jews love to twist the meanings of words to fit their own agendas. They are expert at that. Absolutely. However, then Luther goes on to cite Lyra as an authority who is a converso Jew, and even if there were no other reason, that alone would be sufficient to keep Luther in a state of blindness. We've described several times in this treatise so far to date in, in discussing this, that Luther consistently quoted converso Jews, and he, he, he basically admits that a lot of his learning came from these converso Jews, Lyra and Burgos, Paul of Burgos, or Burgensis, as Luther calls him. Also called good Jews, have only deceived Christians into maintaining the incorrect notions that the Jews are Israel and that the Jews are redeemable. When Christ himself said that there would be no more good fruit from them forever, the fig tree representing Jerusalem. Remember the... Um, the, the parable of the fig tree, where the, the husbandman, the gardener, for um, three years had, had, had taken care of the fig tree and it bore no fruit, and the master said, get rid of it, dig it up, get rid of it. And the gardener said, no, let me try one more time, and, and I'll fertilize it and, and prune it again and see if it bears fruit. That three years and that one more time represent the three and a half years of Christ's ministry. And that tree is never going to bear fruit. Then he cursed the fig tree and said that it would bear no more fruit forever. And they both, both those fig trees represent Jerusalem and his ministry amongst the people who were rejecting Christ. They were Edomites, they were Edomite converts, and rejecting Christ, they ultimately became known as Jews. We're covering that same thing on, on, on well, last night and next week in our coverage of Romans, in our presentation of Romans chapter 9, which is going on at this same time, right? The question which Western theologians must ask is this. Can we inspect original scriptures and histories for ourselves without relying on Jewish so-called authorities? And that is a question that medieval clerics, such as Martin Luther, never seemed to ask. He took the writings of the Jews, as he just admitted in his paper, and presented it to the Germans, quoting Lyra and saying, we're, we're, we're here to show us what rascals these Jews are. Well, he was quoting a conversal Jew to do that, to make his arguments for him. That was a huge mistake, in, in my purview, in, in medieval theology. theology. It must have been something that attributed to their blindness, because they were indeed blind. Luther could realize that Jews were devils, evil bastards, 
Um, he called them bastard Jews in part four of this treatise, as we pointed out last week. It was to his credit that he realized that they were bastard Jews and there were ancient true Jews, as he said, in part four of this treatise, which we highlighted last week. And he compared the bastard Jews of his time to the ancient true Jews, but he still took for granted that there were good Jews that he could that they were converted to Christianity, and, and he could quote from them, and he still took for granted that they, were, they could be Christian scholars. And, and that was a huge mistake, absolutely, as I see it. Luther didn't see it that way. A Jew converts to Christianity, he's got to be okay. He's singing our song. So many white nationalists, identity Christians, do the same thing today. They, they listen to this Jew, Nathaniel Kattner. Oh, he's singing our song. Jews are bad. He is a Jew. He's a damn Jew. He's a filthy Jew. He can't be good. What is Nathaniel Kattner's role in life? I'll tell you what Nathaniel Kattner's role in life is. To, to dress up like a clown, make believe he's a Christian, and convince gullible idiots that Jews could be good, that there could be good Jews. That's Nathaniel Katner's role in life. Don't fall for it. Don't push that idiot in, in, in your websites, your posts, your, your, your replies, your emails. Ignore that SOB because there can't be any good Jews. There's no good fruit from that tree. Christ called the Jewish authorities of his day blind leaders of the blind. And he was certainly, he was certainly a prophet. I'm going to quote from the first two paragraphs of the Wikipedia article on this Nicholas of Lyra, whom Martin Luther is quoting here, and who he quotes throughout this treatise on the Jews of their law and their and their lies, I'm sorry. Luther relied upon the writing of Nicholas of Lyra to a great extent. I do this, even though I don't really trust Wikipedia, but this article is, is fair and it's well cited. We're only using it to get an idea of who Luther is quoting, so we can trust it to that extent. I wouldn't trust it much further than that. Nicholas of Lyra. He lived from approximately 1270 A.D. to 1349 A.D. He's also called Nicholas Liranus. He was a Franciscan teacher, was among the most influential practitioners of biblical exegesis in the Middle Ages. Born into a Jewish family, Nicholas of Lyra received baptism and became a Catholic Christian. They were pushing Jews into publishing houses in those days, too, I guess. In 1291, he entered the Franciscan order in the convent of Vernil, Sir Avrer. Uh, I can't pronounce French, I'm sorry. He was a doctor at the Sorbonne by 1309, and ten years later was appointed the head of all Franciscans in France. Imagine that, 39 years old. His major work, in English it's called Commentary Notes to the Universal Holy Scripture. Imagine that. 
That's the that Pat's the title to his major work in Latin and in English. That's what it means. Commentary notes to the universal holy scripture was the first printed commentary on the Bible. Printed in Rome in 1471, it was later available in Venice, Basel, and elsewhere. In it, each page of biblical text was printed in the upper center of the page and embedded in a surrounding commentary, the single most popular commentary on the Bible in the Middle Ages, written by a converso Jew. Imagine that. Nicholas of Lyra's approach to, the, to explicating scripture <clears throat> was firmly based on the literal sense, which for him is the foundation of all mystical or allegorical or anagogical expositions. He deplored the tortured and elaborated readings being given to scripture in his time by other Jews, according to Luther. The textual basis was so important that he urged that errors be corrected with reference to Hebrew texts. Now this is actually the, 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 the what one thing that this Jew did right, but he's not the, the, the owner of this method. An early glimmer of techniques of textual criticism. Though Nicholas recognized the authoritative value of the church's tradition, well, well of course he did. He had to ingratiate himself with the, the, the dumbasses that were running the church at the time and making this Jew's commentary the most popular commentary in print. We would have several issues with Lyra's approach to Scripture, regardless of whether we think that some of his methods have legitimacy. And I do, admittedly, but, but, but he didn't invent these methods. The insistence upon textual criticism, I employ it in the Christianity and New Testament, which leads one to identify and investigate all the manuscripts and attempt to determine which of those manuscripts are the most reliable. He did not invent that practice, but he did practice it. The most obvious problem is that by insisting that the text should everywhere be interpreted literally, there is a loss of understanding in relation to idioms and allegories, and one may also be easily blinded, and this is important when we interpret scripture, to changes in historical context as we're interpreting the meanings of words. Most notably, this would affect the interpretation of the simplest words, such as the word Jew. Oh, we have to take that literally everywhere. Well, well, the word Jew, the meaning of the words behind that word changed with the historical context. But Luther did not understand the word Jew in a historical context. Not for the most part. Wikipedia readily admits that Lyra himself, when he wrote his commentary, and this is in the Wikipedia article on him, drew heavily from rabbinical commentaries made before him. Imagine that. Wikipedia goes on to state that Lyra's commentary was the most consulted manual of biblical exegesis until the 16th century. Martin Luther, living in the 16th century, depended on it 
cited Lyra quite often in his paper on the Jews and their lives. He used his commentaries, Lyra's commentaries, extensively in his own work on the book of Genesis entitled Lectures on Genesis. He drew heavily from Nicholas of Lyra. Therefore, Luther represents a long line of, tra of tradition. Converso Jew devils learning from unconverted Jew devils who were in turn the instructors of Christians in the Middle Ages. No wonder why we're blind. And all of this is clearly contrary to the words of our Savior and the warnings of his apostles. But it happened. And it's too late for us to fix it. And if we understand the revelation, the prophecies in Scripture, we should understand that our idiocy as a people facilitated the prophecy of God. He knew it. He foresaw our idiocy. He foresees the mistakes that we make today, no doubt, and he uses them in his grand plan to show us that he is God, and we'll know it in the end if we don't know it now. Back to Luther. Now that we've had enough of Nicholas of Lyra, and we see some of the sources and, and influence that Luther had, and now that some have noticed that such evasions, talking about these crazy interpretations of Genesis 49.10, but such evasions and silly glosses are null and void. They admit that the Messiah came at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. But they say, he is in the world secretly, sitting in Rome among the beggars and doing penance for the Jews until his time for his public appearance is at hand. And, and yes, that would be an antichrist statement, as Luther is about to admit. He's attributing it to some of the Jews of his time. These are not the words of Jews or of men this is Luther, he's attributing this statement to the Jews, and he says, these are not the words of Jews or of men, but those of the arrogant, jeering devil who most bitterly and venomously mocks us Christians and our Christ through the Jews, as if to say, the Christians glory much in their Christ, but they have to admit to the yoke of the Romans. They must suffer and be beggars in the world, and not only in the days of the emperors, but also in those of the Pope. After all, they are impotent in my kingdom, the world, and I will surely remain their master. Yes, vile devil, just mock and laugh your fill over this now. You will still tremble enough for it. Understanding those words, examining those words, Luther is admitting that the ideas which the Jews express are devilish, and that those ideas are repeated by Jews. But he still finds a way to avoid labeling the Jews as devils by saying that the devil is using the Jews somehow to say these things. He's not labeling the Jews as devils, even though Christ himself considered the Jews to be devils. Wow. Luther had to be affected by converso Jews such as Nicholas of Lyra to have that huge cognitive disconnect 
oh, the Jews, they're not devils themselves, but some mystical hocus-pocus devil is working in the background that we can't see, and he's pulling the strings of the Jews like marionettes on a stage so that the Jews say the things the devil wants them to say instead of the things the Jews say. Well, Luther is, it is um, wow. He, he's far off base with that one. He should have simply realized that the Jews are devils. Christ told the Jews that they were the sons of their father, the devil, and the works of the devil they would do. But on another note, he called Judas Iscariot, who was is demonstrably from the southern part of Judah, where the land of where the land of Edom. The land called Edumia was located, and he was a devil. Christ called him a devil. In Luke chapter 10, Christ told the apostles they would have, that, that they would have power over serpents and scorpions, and he was talking about those people. Luther didn't see any of those things. Luther was blind. Now, we know that blindness is from Yahweh, but I believe that the popularity of Jewish writers, and we'll see one more, we'll see possibly two more tonight in this chapter of Martin Luther, the popularity of these Jewish writers as commentators on Scripture in the Christian world, that surely facilitated the blindness of these Christian clerics. I can be convinced of that. The Jews were devils. Luther, he, he knew that they were evil. He knew that they said evil things. He knew that they were bastards. He admitted it in part four of this paper on the Jews and their wives. He compared the bastard Jews to the true ancient Jews or contrasted them. But he couldn't go as far as saying that the Jews were devils. Not yet. Not yet, anyway. Not yet in this paper. It might surprise me later on, but he hasn't said it yet. And he stopped short of saying it here. Back to Martin Luther. Thus, the words of Jacob fared very much the same as did these words of Christ in our day. This is my body, which is given for you. Now, now, be careful. Luther is comparing the treatment of the two statements and, and Genesis 49.10 and this statement of Christ's. He's comparing the treatment of these two statements by the Jews. He's not comparing the substance of the two statements, right? And he goes on to say, the enthusiasts distorted each word singly and collectively, putting the last things first, rather than accepting the true meaning of the text as we have observed. It is clear in this instance, too, that Christians such as Lyra, Raymond, Bergensis, and others certainly went to great lengths in an effort to convert the Jews. They hounded them from one word to another, just as foxes are hunted down. But after having been hounded a long time, they still persisted in their obstinacy and now set to 
erring consciously and would not depart from their rabbis. Thus, we must let them go their way and ignore their malicious blasphemy and lying. And, and the truth is, if we understood the gospel, Christians should have never been trying to convert Jews. Never. However, these medieval Christians thought that they should be converting Jews, probably because of commentators such as Lyra and Bergensis. Here, Martin Luther mentions one name that he mentioned in previous sections, Bergensis. That's Paul of Burgos. We'll be talking about him momentarily. And he mentions another name which he had not mentioned yet in this paper on the Jews and their lies, and that's the name of Raymond. The Raymond, who Luther refers to here, who's obviously an influence on Luther, at least a small one, is Raymond Lull. His name is spelled Ramon in, in Spanish, Ramon, R-A-M-O-N, Lull, L-L-U-L-L, I know that it's probably pronounced different in Spanish, but I'm, I'm an American. He is Raymond Lully, L-U-L-L-Y, to Englishmen. Raymond Lully, kind of like Lily almost, but with a U. He was considered to be a mystic and a poet, this Raymond Lull, who had an influence on later Neoplatonic mysticism. He also had, an, he had personal interests in both Eastern and Islamic mysticism. He lived from about 1232 until about 1315 A.D., had a long life. He was a scion of a wealthy noble family of Catalonia and Mallorca in Spain and raised and educated. Mallorca is an island off the southern coast of Spain in the Mediterranean, right? raised and educated in the royal court of Mallorca, who had an epiphany that he should spend his life converting Muslims and Jews to Christianity. So Raymond definitely did not do white Christian Europe any favors. Therefore, he spent a good deal of his life in North Africa attempting to use philosophable because he was into what I would like to call philosophable. That's what he was into, his Eastern and Islamic mysticism. He was attempting use, to use philosophable in order to convert devils to Christ. That's how he spent his life. Without more information, I can't really determine whether Raymond himself was a Jew or whether he had any Arabic blood. I kind of suspect it from where he came from and when he came from there, but I can't prove it, so I can't say it. But Raymond was this mystical medieval cleric who um, thought he should spend his life in Africa converting Muslims and Jews to Christ. And... He was an influence on Luther, and, and Luther mentions him here. The more dangerous of these characters is Paul of Burgos, who Luther calls Burgensis. And Paul of Burgos is often, very often quoted in Martin Luther's work. We've mentioned him several times in, 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 in covering Luther's work up to this point. Burgensis was a Jew. And to understand 
Urgensis, we shall resort to quoting Wikipedia once again that the argument is that the document is well cited and it's accurate because I've compared it to um, other encyclopedias. Paula Burgos was born about 1351. He died in August of 1435, so he too had a long life. He was a Spanish Jew who converted to Christianity and became an archbishop, lord chancellor, and exegete. Why do these Jews convert and, and, and um, get put on pedestals in a very short time? For the same reason why clowns like Brother Nathaniel say bad things about Jews and white nationalists kiss their asses because they're saying something they like to hear about Jews. It's the same psychology in the 13 and 1400s that it is today amongst white Christians and, and, and secular white nationalists alike. No doubt. He became an archbishop, lord chancellor, and exegete. He is also known as Pablo de Santa Maria. That these Jews convert and, and they become saints, right? Paul de Santa Maria and Pauli Episcopi Bergensis. His original name was Solomon Ha Levi. Imagine that. And he was a great impact on Martin Luther. He was the most wealthy and influential Jew of Burgos, a scholar of the first rank in Talmudic and rabbinical literature and a rabbi of the Jewish community. He converted, and he's an instant archbishop. Imagine that. His father, Isaac HaLevi, had come from Aragon to Navarre to Burgos in the middle of the 14th century. Solomon HaLevi apparently filled the office of tax farmer at the same time. A Jew tax farmer converts to Christianity, becomes the archbishop. Imagine that. And a great influence on Martin Luther. His scholarship and intelligence, no less than his piety, won the praise of Isaac ben whom he with whom he carried on a learned correspondence. I could imagine the psychobabble in that, two Jews talking back and forth about the Talmud. He received Christian baptism on the 21st of July, 1391. He was 40 years old, right? He himself said that he had been convinced by the works of Thomas Aquinas. I'll tell you what Thomas Aquinas said. It's posted on Christogenia. Thomas Aquinas wrote a letter to a, I, I think she was a Dutch prisoner. No, Margaret of Flanders. Thomas Aquinas wrote a letter to Margaret of Flanders. And you know what he said? He said that a Jew should not be allowed to keep the money he gained through usury. That's what he said. No wonder why these Jew bankers and tax farmers wanted to convert to Christianity so they could keep their damn money. I'm just making that up, but I'm not making up the part about Thomas Aquinas. He did say that in a letter to Margaret of Flanders. It's posted on my website, christogeny.org.
At the same time, his brothers, Pedro Suarez, a Jew, Alvar Garcia, a Jew, and his sister Maria Nunez, and his children, one daughter and four sons, all Jews, aged from 3 to 12 years, were baptized. Of course, they were aged from 3 to 12 years, right? So he just converted them. His wife, Joanna, whom he had married in his 26th year, remained faithful to Judaism, dying in that faith in 1420. She was afterward buried in the church of San Pablo, built by her husband. Paula Burgos is another devil-turned-saint. I am confident that a deeper study of the works of these men would reveal that under the cover of converting to Christianity, all they really did was give their Talmudic rabbinical training a legitimate Catholic face, thereby treat basically, in essence, teaching Christians to learn the learning of the Jews. They succeeded. What they really succeeded in doing is converting Christianity to Judaism. Judaism plus Christ is Christianity. Modern Judeo-Christianity. And men like Luther fell for it in many ways. With this, it is no wonder that Luther relied so much on sophistry. And we demonstrated this soundly in the opening three parts of On the Jews and Their Lives. Luther relied on sophistry in all of his arguments against the Jews. And he relied very little on the words of Christ and on the words of the apostles. And Luther is about to admit the Jewish influence on his thinking once again, and, and he'll do it a few times. Paula Burgos was actually also a writer of biblical commentaries. He didn't write his own commentary from scratch. What he did was he took Lyra's commentary from 100 years before him, and he added to it. He added his own work to it and had it published, right? And, and that's what he was most famous for. Back to Martin Luther. And we have some background on some of his sources and some of the men that he esteemed. I once experienced this myself. Three learned Jews came to me, hoping to discover a new Jew in me, because we were beginning to read Hebrew here in Wittenberg and remarking that matters would soon improve since we Christians were starting to read their books. That, that's just crazy, right? When I debated with them, they gave me their glosses, as they usually do. In other words, their bad interpretations or translations of Scripture. But when I forced them back to the text, they soon fled from it, saying that they were obliged to believe their rabbis, as we do, the Pope and the doctors, etc. I took pity on them, and gave them a letter of recommendation to the authorities, asking that for Christ's sake, that this is terrible that Luther would do this, for Christ's sake, they let them freely go their way. We don't do anything for Jews in the name of Christ. But later, I found out that they called Christ a tola, and that is a hanged highwayman. Therefore, I do not wish to have anything more to do with any Jew. As St. Paul says, they are consigned to wrath. Well, Luther should have been listening to St. Paul in the first place instead of thinking that he could do better than Paul. 
or that he could do better than Christ and he'll actually convert some Jews. No. If Christ couldn't convert them, forget them. And that's what the apostles taught. That's what 2 John 9 through 11 is all about. If they don't already have the doctrine of Christ, get them out of your house. Therefore, I do not have anything more to do with any Jew. As St. Paul says, they are consigned to wrath. The more one tries to help them, the baser and more stubborn they become. Leave them to their own devices. Martin Luther's finding out the hard way. We Christians, however, can greatly strengthen our faith with the statement of Jacob, assuring us that Christ is now present and that he has been present for almost 1,500 years, but not as the devil jeers, as beggars in Rome, as a beggar in Rome, rather as a ruling Messiah. If this were not so, then God's word and promise would be a lie. By statement of Jacob, he's referring to his interpretation of Genesis 49.10, right? If the Jews would only let Holy Scripture be God's word, they would also have to admit that there has been a Messiah since the time of Herod, no matter where, rather than awaiting another. But before doing this, they will rather tear and pervert Scripture until it is no longer Scripture. And this is, in fact, their situation. They have neither Messiah nor Scripture, just as Isaiah 28 prophesied of them. The text of Isaiah chapter 28 is initially dress addressing the drunkards of Ephraim. The drunkards of Ephraim were not in the Babylonian captivity. They did not return to Palestine with Nehemiah and Ezra, and who therefore were never Jews. They were never Judeans. So they certainly could not ever have been Jews. However, if Luther intends the later half of the chapter, it, go, it goes on to address those that rule this people which is in Jerusalem which he surely seems to intend, right? And it says in verse 16, Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Now the apostle Peter, quoting that passage, said in his epistle at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, that those who stumbled at that stone were appointed to stumble at that stone. In other words, Luther should have never been attempting to convert Jews. They stumbled at that stone 1,600 years before him. If Peter says they were appointed to stumble at that stone, and Luther's trying to convert Jews, he's actually resisting that appointment. 1 Peter 2.6 Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore, which believed he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. 
and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them who stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed, meaning those that rejected Christ back in the first century, they were not supposed to accept Christ. They were appointed to disobedience. We are not supposed to be converting these Jew bastards. Nathaniel Katner, he might dress up like a circus clown, but he's a Jew, and he's always going to be a Jew. He can never be accepted by Christians. And if you're a Christian and you're watching this clown's videos and pasting his links in your little Facebooks, you're a clown. It is not the Christian's place to dispute with Jews over the Old Testament. Paul announced the gospel, and like Christ, he had men inquire into the scriptures for themselves to see if it was true. Christ already did that. That is why the apostle Jude said, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. He ain't referring to the skin and bones. Durst not bring, act, bring against him a railing accusation, but said, Yahweh rebuke thee. The body of Moses is the law in the scriptures. And Christ said, For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. John 5, 46. Back to Luther. But may this suffice on the saying of Jacob. And Luther right there ends his exposition of Genesis 49.10. And he proceeds by saying, let us take another saying which the Jews did not and cannot twist and distort in this way. In the last words of David, we find him saying, and he's referring to 2 Samuel 23, 2, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is upon my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel. And a little later, in verse 5, does not my house stand so with God? Or to translate it literally from the Hebrew, my house is, of course, not thus. That is to say, my house is, after all, not worthy. This is too glorious a thing, and it is too much that God does all of this for a poor man like me. For he has made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. Know well how David exalts with so numerous and seemingly superfluous words that the Spirit of God has spoken through him and that God's word is upon his tongue. Thus he says, the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel, etc. It is as if he were to say, my dear people, give ear. Whoever can hear, let him hear. Here is God who is speaking and saying, Listen, what is it then that you exhort us to listen to? What is God saying through you? What does he wish to say to you? What shall we hear? That is, I'm sorry, this is, continuing with Luther, right? 
This is what you are to hear. That God made an everlasting firm and sure covenant with me, meaning with David, and my house, a covenant of which my house is not worthy. Indeed, my house is nothing compared to God, and yet he did this. What is this everlasting covenant? Oh, open your ears and listen. My house and God have bound themselves together through an oath. This is a covenant. A promise which must exist and endure forever. For it is God's covenant and pledge, which no one shall or can break or hinder. My house shall stand eternally. It is ordered in all things and secure. The word, a rock, he's referring to the Hebrew word, which means ordered. The word, a rock, conveys the meaning that it will not disappoint or fail one in the least. I believe the word rock is the word that we get the English word rack from. Excuse me. Have you heard this? And do you believe that God is truthful? Yes, without doubt. My dear people, do you also believe that he can and will keep his word? Well and good. If God is truthful and almighty and spoke these words through David, which no Jew dares to deny, then David's house and government, which are the same thing, must have endured since the time he spoke these words, and must still endure and will endure forever, that is, eternally. Otherwise, God would be a liar. In brief, either we must have David's house or heir, who reigns from the time of David to the present and in eternity. Or David died as a flagrant liar to his last day, uttering these words, as it seems, as so much idle chit-chat. God speaks, God says, God promises. It is futile to join the Jews in giving God the lie, saying that he did not keep these precious words and promises. We must, I say, have an heir of David from his, from his time onward, in proof of the fact that his house has never stood empty, no matter where his heir may be. For his house must have been continuous and must ever remain so. Here we find God's word that this is an everlasting, firm, and sure covenant without a flaw, but everything in it must be a rock, meaning ordered magnificently ordered as God orders all his work. Psalm 111.3, full of honor and majesty in his work. And usually when Luther quotes scripture, he quotes very short pieces. We would agree with Luther on the nature of the interpretation of David's throne. It was definitely eternal, It had to be on earth. It had to be forever. But we would disagree that it is found in the remnant 70 weeks kingdom in Judea. We would also disagree that Shiloh is come since we esteem that to reference, we esteem that reference to Shiloh to mean the second advent of Christ. However, it is clear in any event, that Luther does not understand the true nature or location of Judah, the actual tribe of Judah. 
he goes on to say, Now let the Jews produce such an heir of David, for they must do so. Since we read here that David's house is everlasting, a house that no one will destroy or hinder, but rather, as we also read here, and he quotes 2 Samuel 23, 4, it shall be like the sun shining forth, which no cloud can hinder. If they are unable to present such an heir or house of David, then they stand fully condemned by this verse, and they show that they are surely without God, without David, without Messiah, without everything, that they are lost and eternally condemned. And all this is true. But the simple fact of the matter is that the Jews are not Judah. Of course, they cannot deny that the kingdom or house of David endured uninterruptedly until the Babylonian captivity, even throughout the Babylonian captivity, and following this to the days of Herod. It endured, I say, not by its own power and merit, but by virtue of this everlasting covenant made with the house of David. And we elaborated on this when Luther talked in length of Genesis 49, verse 10, in our last presentation, that yes, the house of David endured forever, but it certainly did not endure in Judea beyond the Babylonian captivity. It must have endured, but there was no throne of David's in Jerusalem, nor a lawgiver from Judah. And Luther made a, a big exposition in part four of his treatise saying that this scepter is a king on a throne. And that this word for lawgiver meant just what it says, a lawgiver. There was no lawgiver from Judah, in Judah, at any time after the Babylonian captivity. For most of the time after the Babylonian captivity, Judea was a subject state of foreign kings, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. It was only independent for about 90 years, from about 156, 154 in there, B.C., when the Maccabees defeated the Seleucids, until about 63 B.C., when Judea became a subject kingdom to the Romans. It was only independent for about 90 years, and during that 90 years, it was not ruled by men of Judah. It was ruled by the Levitical priests, the high priests known as the Maccabees. So Luther is stretching this the, the, the language of Genesis 49.10, he's trying to force it to fit the 70 weeks kingdom of Daniel, Judea, in the intertestament period, right? He's forcing it to fit that period, and it doesn't. Luther continues, For most of their kings and rulers were evil, practicing idolatry, killing the prophets, and living shamefully. For example, Rehoboam, Joram, Joash, Ahaz, Manasseh, etc., surpassed all the Gentiles or the kings of Israel in vileness. Because of them, the house and tribe of David fully deserved to be exterminated. That was what finally happened to the kingdom of Israel. Well, no, it wasn't, but Luther thought it was. 
However, the covenant made with David remained in effect. The books of the kings and of the prophets exaltedly declare that God preserved a lamp or a light to the house of David, which he would not permit to be extinguished. Thus we read in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 19, and in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 7, yet the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he had made with David since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. That same thought is expressed in 2 Samuel 7.12. And of course, all these promises are true. But none of it is in Judea. And Luther is about to quote at length from 2 Samuel chapter 7, from verse 12 and other verses, while he ignores 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. He quotes 2 Samuel 7, 12. He ignores 2 Samuel 7, 10. I'm going to read 2 Samuel all three verses, 10, 11, and 12, from chapter 7. Moreover, the word of Yahweh, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. Now, Yahweh is telling David this while they are in Palestine, in Israel, in Jerusalem. So this place that's appointed cannot be in Palestine, in Israel, or in Jerusalem. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also Yahweh telleth thee that he will make thee a house. Yahweh is telling David he will make David a house. And when thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Luther tries to interpret that as Christ is really not correct. By way of contrast, look at the kingdom of Israel. Back to Luther, right? Where the rule never remained with the same tribe or family beyond the second generation, with the, exception, with the exception of Jehu, who by reason of a special promise carried it into the fourth generation of his house. Otherwise, it always passed from one tribe to another, and at times scarcely survived for one generation. Moreover, it was not long until the kingdom died out completely, but through the wondrous deeds of the God, of God, the kingdom of Judah remained with the tribe of Judah and the house of David. It withstood strong opposition on the part of the Gentiles round about, from Israel itself, from uprisings within, from gross idolatries and sins, so that it would not have been surprising if it had perished in the third generation under Rehoboam, or at least under Joram, Ahab. Manasseh, but it had a strong protector who did not let it die or let its light become extinguished. The promise was given that it would re remain firm, eternally firm and secure, and so it has remained and must remain down to the present time and forever, for God does not and cannot lie. 
And, of course, all of the scripture is true. But Luther cannot justly account for it after 586 B.C. He cannot account for it after 586 B.C. He tries hard to apply Genesis 49.10 to the 70 weeks kingdom, but it doesn't work. The 70 weeks kingdom, Genesis 49.10, cannot be found in the 70 weeks kingdom, not with any honesty. And Luther tries hard because he has no conception of Judah outside of Palestine. He's blind to the dispersions of Israel. The Jews drivel that the kingdom perished with the Babylonian captivity. As we said earlier, well, the Jews aren't wrong about everything, right? The, the, the kingdom in, 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 in Judea certainly did. As we said earlier, this is empty talk, for this is constituted but a short punishment, definitely confined to a period of 70 years. That 70 years applied to, to the temple, right, in the city. God had pledged his word for that. Moreover, he preserved them during this time through splendid prophets. Furthermore, King Jehoiachin, also known as Jeconiah, was exalted above all kings in Babylon, and Daniel and his companions ruled not only over Judah and Israel, but also over the Babylonian Empire. And this in part is right, but Daniel and his companions is a vague reference, and Daniel and his companions were not the appointed descendants of David. Furthermore, Yahweh explicitly said that Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, as he's called, Yahweh explicitly said that he would not have a descendant to rule over Judah. His house was cursed. Luther is stretching matters because he does not comprehend that most of the real tribe of Judah is far beyond the borders of Babylonia and Palestine. He can't see the fulfillment of Genesis 49.10 because he doesn't understand the dispersions of Israel and Judah. So therefore, he's trying to force Genesis 49.10 into the 70 weeks kingdom. It does not work. Even if their seat of government was not in Jerusalem for a short span of time, they nonetheless ruled elsewhere much more gloriously than in Jerusalem. And he's not talking about Judah in dispersion. He's talking about Daniel in Babylon, which actually only lasted for Daniel's lifetime. Luther has blurred the throne of David into the Judeans in general, which itself is an abuse of the prophecy because the promise to David was very explicit that he would never want a man of his seed sitting on a throne somewhere over Yahweh's people. There's nothing. None of the men of Judah in the 70 weeks kingdom were rulers over the people of Judea, none of them.
And that was the word of God in the curse of Jeconiah, which we repeated here last week. See if I can pull it up real quick. This is um, Jeremiah 22, verse 30. Thus saith Yahweh, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. The man is called Coniah. Jeremiah 22, 28 through 30. Coniah is short for Jeconiah. He took the Yahweh part out of it, right? He took his name out of it. Out of it. He took his name out of Jeremiah's name, out of Jeconiah's name when he addressed him, right? That's actually what that means if you look at the Hebrew. calls him Coniah. I'm, I might be wrong about that because Coniah might be the, the Yahweh part, I-A-H. But regardless, he shortens his name, calls him Kaniah instead of Jeconiah. The name from Hebrew is transliterated Jeconiah or Jehoiachin. I don't know if that's confusion in the translators or confusion in the manuscripts, but it's the same person, Jeconiah. And that's Kaniah in Jeremiah 22. He was not to have a descendant sitting on the throne of Judah. That's the curse of Jeconiah. In Jeremiah chapter 22, he was not to have a descendant sitting on the throne of Judah. None of the ancestors of Christ from the time of the deportations to Babylon to the time of, of, of the birth of Christ, none of that male line to which Christ inherited the right to the throne of David while they were in Palestine actually sat on the throne of David because of the curse of Jeconiah. So they were the line of kings, but they never ruled the kingdom and they never sat on a throne. They did not fulfill Genesis 49.10. But Luther, being blind to Judah in dispersion, is forced to try to fit this prophecy into where he thinks he sees Judah which is in Palestine. Thus, we may say that the house of David did not become extinct in Babylon, but shone more resplendently than in Jerusalem. They only had to vacate their homeland for a while by the way of punishment, for when a king takes the field of a foreign country, he cannot be regarded as an ex-king because he is not in his homeland especially if he is attended by great victory and good fortune against many nations. Rather, one should say that he is more illustrious abroad than at home. And here Luther is inventing a history for Judah and Palestine, which the nation never had. He's trying to take the, the, the promise that... that, that um, David would never want a, 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 a man of his seed to sit on the throne. He's trying to change that 
into another promise in Scripture, which he mentioned about the light before Judah, right? He's saying that they shined forth in Palestine. But that doesn't mean that the prophecy is fulfilled that David had a man sitting on the throne in Palestine. He did not. That prophecy in, to David and, and that scepter of Judah to, in, in, in Genesis 49.10, that was not fulfilled in Palestine in the 70 weeks kingdom, not by any means. Luther's forcing the interpretation. He goes on to say, if God kept his covenant from the time of David to that of Herod, preserving his house from extinction, he must have kept it from that time on to the present, and he will keep it eternally, so that David's house has not died and cannot die eternally. For we dare not rebuke God as half truthful and half untruthful, saying that he kept his covenant and preserved David's house faithfully from David's time to that of Herod. Well, David still had no man sitting on the throne in Palestine from Zedekiah's time, who was Shechaniah's uncle, right? until the time of Herod. No man from David's seed sat on a throne in Palestine. So while Luther's claiming we can't take God as half truthful and half untruthful, he's still interpreting this prophecy in a way which makes God half truthful and half untruthful. He can't help it because he doesn't see Judah beyond the bounds of Palestine. He's trying to force fit this prophecy into Palestine. It don't work. Christian identity has to be true or the word of God fails. And Luther can't see that even while he's explaining it. Saying that he kept his covenant and preserved David's house faithfully from David's time to that of Herod, but that after the time of Herod he began to lie and to become deceitful, ignoring and altering his covenant no, for as the house of David remained and shone, but the prophecy says it would rule, right? And shone up to Herod's time. Thus it had to remain under Herod and after Herod, shining to, etern to eternity. Now, of course, none of the house of David were Jews. And those who were in Palestine never held the rule, never sat on a throne after 586 B.C. The word of Yahweh explicitly says that they would not. Yet, the word of Yahweh says that Judah would never cease to have a ruler in Israel. Well, that couldn't have been fulfilled in the 70 weeks nation. The word of Yahweh said that David would never want a man sitting on a throne. That could not have been fulfilled in the 70 weeks nation. We in Christian identity believe the prophecy to be true, but to be fulfilled with Judah in Northern Europe and not in Palestine. Luther could not see that. It was not his to see. So we should praise Yahweh that we can. But that was a, 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 uh, a major impediment to Luther's understanding of the real nature of the Jews and the real nature of the fulfillment of these prophecies. Now, we know how nicely this saying of David harmonizes with that of the patriarch Jacob. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the mehokak, 
Now, we explained that, um, that word mehokek last week. From his feet until Messiah comes. And that is a reference to a lawgiver. And none of the men of Judah during the 70 weeks came. During the 70 weeks nation, the 70 weeks kingdom, were making the laws for that nation during the intertestamental period. None of them. The Levites were running the country, and foreign kings were ruling over them for all that time except for 90 years. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, Judah, nor the Mehokek from his seed until Messiah comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Genesis 49.10. How can it be expressed more clearly or differently than that David's house will, will shine forth until the Messiah comes? It doesn't say shine forth. It's talking about the scepter. And Luther in part four insisted that it was talking about the scepter as a symbol of rule over the people. And it's talking about the lawgiver. And Luther, in part four, insisted that that word referred to lawgivers, legislators. Luther changes scepter and lawgiver to shine forth in order to force fit this prophecy of Genesis 49.10 into his interpretation so that it fits the intertestamental period remnant in Judea. And he goes on to say, then through him the house of David will shine, meaning through the Messiah, not only over Judah and Israel, but also over the Gentiles or over other and more numerous countries. And Luther universalizes the term for nations by accepting the Jewish definition of the word, meaning that it means non-Jews. But the word Gentiles, everywhere it appears in the New Testament, means nations. It's from the Greek word ethnos. It does not mean non-Jews. It means nations, generally. Everywhere it appears in the Old Testament, it comes almost everywhere. Not quite. Sometimes it comes from the word am, which means a people, but usually it comes from the word goi, which means a nation. And the promise to Rebecca was that two goi were in, are in thy womb. So two Gentiles are in Rebecca's womb. Two nations. Luther, that, that interpretation of that word, ethnos, to mean Gentiles or, or non-Jews, that is a Jewish interpretation. And I'm sure that Luther got that from Burgos and, and, and Lyra because he couldn't have gotten it from classical Greek. Not at all. Those nations in the New Testament where Paul often talks of the nations, and Romans chapter 4 proves this beyond doubt, he's talking about the nations which were Israel, which Israel became in their dispersions. 
And that's who he addresses all of his epistles to. And once again, even though that is the plain interpretation in so many of Paul's epistles, Luther was blind to it. Now, we understand that it was the providence of Yahweh that made Luther blind to that. But I would kind of bet that it was Luther's reliance on converso Jewish scholars that facilitated that blindness. Yahweh uses our sins all the time to effect his will. And we see that in, in little stories in Scripture with Judah and Tamar, for instance. If Judah didn't go chasing after a whore, there would be no tribe of Pharez and there would be no tribe of Zarah. But Judah went chasing after a whore. Yahweh used Judah's sin to effect something good because all the tribe of Judah would be Canaanites if Judah were not whoremonger. So Yahweh took something bad and facilitated it. He took our sin and facilitated his good from it to fulfill his promise. That happens on a larger scale, too. The children of Israel were told that they didn't kill all the Canaanites, that those Canaanites would be thorns in their eyes. Well, the children of Israel, they did not kill all the Canaanites. Christ healed the Canaanite woman for that reason, so that she would be thorns in our eyes, and some idiots would be professing universalism because he healed the Canaanite woman's daughter. Lyra and Bergensis were Canaanites, and they were thorns in Martin Luther's eyes. There's no doubt, no doubt whatsoever. With this, we're going to end tonight. I really wanted to finish part five tonight, but this took, um, well, I probably extrapolated a lot more than I thought I would, but this took a lot longer than I thought. We will finish this at a future date. Um, I don't know if... Um, I'm going to have time to finish it in July and, and to move on to part six in July. I'm going to um, do at least one weekend of call-in programs at the, end of this, the, at the end of July. That's because, Yahweh willing, Melissa and I are relocating to Panama City, Florida at the end of the month, and, and that's going to take a at least a good week of my time, and, and um, I'll do call-in programs during that period rather than my regularly scheduled presentations. Um, if we don't get back to Luther in July, we'll definitely get back to him in August. Next week, Brother Ryan, we also have a program with Pastor Mark Downey in the upcoming week, so I'm not sure exactly which one. I look forward to that also. And um, I'll be here next Friday with this, the second part of Romans chapter 9 and the story of Jacob and Esau. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.